Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damian Thompson. Today is January the 31st, 2022, which should be my sister Carmel's birthday, but isn't, because she died on November the 23rd. It wasn't unexpected. Carmel recorded two Holy Smoke podcast interviews with me about living with ovarian cancer, with which she was diagnosed on the 1st of November 2018, and diagnosed at stage 4, which meant that it was overwhelmingly likely that she'd die within the next five years. It was news that would send most people into a spiral of despair, but not Carmel. And you can hear that in this extract from an April 2020 podcast, recorded soon after Carmel's brief, glorious period of remission had come to an end. Every time I see you and talk to you, I get the feeling, first of all, that you're managing this disease without letting it take you over. And secondly, more remarkably, there's normally something else you want to talk about and that it's not at the forefront of your mind. No, I mean, I think the return to wellness and and keeping well and having my numbers responding and uh, as well as my wonderful friends and loved ones around me um, have enabled me to adopt this sense of denial actually and I use that uh, word advisedly because what I mean is and other people have described the same sensation it's not the denial that is like the workings of grief where the first stage is that you do not accept that something has happened to you. I do accept that it's happened to me and I follow advice of my doctors and I do as I'm told and I try to live well but I do actively set aside this sense of cancer in my mind and get on with my life and I I don't want to be part of this cancer club as such. And I know many people find it helpful to join umpteen chat rooms and to discuss every symptom they have. And if they find that helpful, that's marvellous. And they, they look up all the trials and they discuss the data with other people. And I just don't want to do that because I don't want to be defined by it. And I also know that there's some kind of evidence that a positive state of mind can help you live longer. And... And I think I'm going to make an enormous assumption that I'm going to be the person at the head of the survival curve who doesn't succumb to what some people have to go through. And therefore, maybe I can believe that it can come true. And so actually, a lot of the time I don't go around thinking I've got cancer, I've got cancer. I just think, right, what am I going to do today? I'm going to cook something new. I'm going to clear out the fish pond or I'm going to take my dog for a walk. That was Carmel talking to me, what, some 18 months before she died. This healthy denial thing was always a bit of a mystery to me. Not in the sense that I didn't know what she meant, but because I had no idea how she managed to achieve this extraordinary state of mind. Notice that in that extract she referred to an enormous assumption, that she would be one of the very few ovarian cancer sufferers who live for more than five years. She always avoided looking at mortality statistics, But she was, in fact, a qualified medical doctor, although she hadn't worked as one for decades. During 2021, with more and more evidence of the cancer spreading, maintaining that healthy denial became more and more of a strain for her. But she persisted. On October the 3rd, she was taken into hospital with a liver infection that led to liver failure. 
Her doctors at her insistence didn't discuss end-of-life issues, as they're called these days. But her specialists did give her test results, and there were tests almost every day. And of course, Carmel, being a doctor, had no difficulty interpreting them. Because of Covid rules, I was the only person allowed to visit her for most of that period. I could see her spirits flagging, but not her determination. At one point it looked as if she'd be well enough to go home. But she worked out that when the doctors talked about going home, they meant going home to die, and she wasn't having any of that. Her healthy denial, or the vestiges of it, lasted until three days before she died. At that point, and my God, it took some really serious pressure from me, the hospital allowed her to see a couple of visitors. And it was during a visit from a particularly close friend that the specialist and another doctor came in to tell Carmel that really there was nothing more they could do for her. And they asked her very gently, and I know it would have been gently because those doctors and nurses were lovely people, whether she would sign a DNR a do-not-resuscitate order. And her initial response was to say no, not just because she wanted to live, but because, as a devout Catholic, with a particular commitment to the pro-life cause, she didn't like the idea of doctors being able to make life-and-death decisions. And they explained to her that the point of the DNR was that if she lost consciousness right at the very end, and her heart stopped beating, they could probably start the heart again, but that it wouldn't bring her back to consciousness, and it would simply be, for a short period, her heart beating. And then she said in a small, sad voice, but if my heart's not beating, then there's no me anymore. But she understood, and she signed. My last couple of visits to her were absolutely excruciating. I'm afraid I'm completely dotty, she said to me meaning that she was having a lot of difficulty concentrating, understanding, finding the right word, and that's because her brain was beginning to shut down. I remember on the last visit for which she was conscious, I suggested taking a selfie, which might seem an absolutely macabre suggestion, but actually Carmen used to ask me to take selfies with her. So when I said, this time, let's take a selfie, sis, she said, yes, as a record of our journey together. And that was the only time I heard her acknowledge that she was going to die, because, of course, what she meant was that the journey was over. My last visit to her on November the 23rd was unspeakably horrible, and I will spare you the details. She wasn't conscious, but one of the things they don't tell you, amid all this talk of the wonders of palliative care, is that when the body is giving up the ghost, it doesn't always do so gently. You may wonder why I'm emphasising the awfulness of all this, and I'm not quite sure myself, but I think the point is that during seven weeks in hospital, the horrors afflicting my poor sister increased relentlessly, and she did not complain once. The way she approached living with a terminal diagnosis for three years constituted the most sustained and extraordinary act of heroism that I've ever encountered. And I hope Carmel's many non-Christian friends won't take offence if I say that, for me, it was a distinctively Christian act of heroism. What they saw, what I saw, were endless little acts of kindness and thoughtfulness, even at the moments of the greatest fear. 
I knew she was a practicing Catholic, of course, and we talked on our podcasts about her religious faith. But it wasn't until I went back to her house in Sussex after she died and opened her bedside table, realising that actually there's no such thing as invasion of privacy when somebody's dead, that I realised how deeply she drew on the prayers and contemplative traditions of the Catholic Church. The drawer was absolutely full of prayer books and guides to spiritual exercises. Carmel could have been forgiven, I think, for giving up on the institutional church. It's a heartbreaking fact that, although she attended Mass every week, she never received a single pastoral visit from her parish priest. I think she was very hurt by this, but when I raised the subject, furious, she'd always say, oh, well, he's not very good with people. Fortunately, however, Carmel had a spiritual advisor who is very good with people, Father Julian Large, the provost of the London Oratory. It's funny how things turn out. 25 years ago, I used to tease relentlessly a reporter on the Daily Telegraph's Peterborough column who was an Anglo-Catholic. Come on, Julian, I'd say, you're basically Protestants, despite your fantasy ceremonies and meticulous observance of the rituals of the Roman Rite. I had no idea I was talking to the future Catholic priest, who would become my sister's confessor and spiritual advisor throughout the course of her illness. They prayed and read the Bible together, and made jokes at my expense, which, given the ribbing I'd given Julian in his Anglo-Catholic days, I think is only fair enough. When I think of Father Julian rushing across London, as he did several times, to comfort my sister, to bring her the sacraments, I cannot... Excuse me, but I cannot help thinking about the way in which priests such as Father Julian are being persecuted for their rigid adherence to the Church's traditional liturgy. If this is rigidity, then we desperately need more of it, and I know that Carmel thought so too. And I should mention that another priest was very important to her, and that's Father Benedict Keeley of the Ordinariate. Father Ben, in sharp contrast to Carmel's parish priest, drove a long way in order to celebrate Mass, according to the ordinary usage, in her admittedly enormous kitchen. And both of us were struck by the wonderful beauty of the translation of the Mass and the rubrics. But, of course, it had to be Father Julian who celebrated Carmel's funeral Mass in the exquisite and, by oratorian standards, rather austere chapel of the Seven Dollars of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And on this occasion... I think I can say I was rather grateful for Carmel's refusal to contemplate her imminent death, because she'd left no instructions whatsoever about how the funeral mass should be celebrated. And I'm glad to say that Julian entirely supported me in my wish to have a very small private family funeral for Carmel in the first instance, and then a memorial service some months later. That's an established way of doing things, not so common nowadays, but I prefer it. The Requiem Mass, or Anglican service, or whatever, with the body present, can be a really harrowing experience for the bereaved. I'm not sure it's the right moment for people who only slightly knew the deceased person to turn up to pay their respects. Perhaps I'm being selfish, but it was only three years since Carmel and I buried our mother after a lovely and conventional funeral service. Entirely appropriate, I think, given the rather different circumstances. Our mother was nearly 95, and there really was a sense of celebrating her life at this 
wonderful mass. In the case of my sister, celebrating her life and paying respects, I thought was something that ought to be done a bit later. And so we held what I rather disingenuously described as a family funeral. It wasn't, because sadly there's no close family left, just me. But Carmel did have a wonderful, quite tight-knit group of friends who'd been with her throughout her cancer ordeal. And as far as I was concerned, they certainly counted as family. Anyway, it was an extraordinary, haunting service, entirely in Latin, and being a low mass there was no music. But we didn't need any tear-jerking hymns. The atmosphere of mourning could not have been more solemn, or, dare I say it, beautiful. And that had quite a lot to do with the undertakers. We were very lucky that Guy's Hospital had referred us to Albin and Sons, an independent firm of funeral directors for over 200 years, who, when it comes to performing their duties, are basically the Brompton Oratory of undertakers. Their dress is distinctive, and there's a sort of exquisite choreography about the way they move. As the coffin left the church, they stopped the traffic in Brompton Road, which is really no mean achievement. But that said, of course, nothing can really detract from the horror of Carmel's premature and difficult death. And I'm sure most of you will know what I'm talking about. There aren't many families who haven't lost somebody to cancer. I'm not sure that my self-deprecating Carmel would have been happy about all the fuss I'm making about her. But, although I'm biased, I do think there was something extraordinary about her kindness, her courage, the radiance of the love that she showed towards her friends, to me, and particularly my mother. I have so many photographs of Carmel lovingly looking after my mother during her long and awful decline. Again, that will be a familiar story to so many of you. But I can't help being haunted by the knowledge that my sister basically sacrificed years of her life in order to be a wonderful carer. One of the things I found in Carmel's wallet after she died was a little note from my mother, obviously written quite a few years ago, in which my mother thanked her from the bottom of her heart for everything she'd done for her. When I look at those photographs, I feel absolute despair at the knowledge that death was coming for Carmel as well as for my very elderly mother. And I know that Christians are not supposed to despair, but I'm afraid that, for me, the consolations of religion have pretty much evaporated. But that doesn't mean that no good can come out of this very sad turn of events. I mentioned my dear friend Father Benedict Keeley, who runs the charity Nazarene.org, that helps persecuted Christians and other religious believers in the Middle East to recover from a devastating assault on their communities. Carmel vigorously supported Nazarene.org, which will soon be unveiling an icon to persecuted Christians, the first in London, in the Ordinariate's beautiful 18th century chapel in Warwick Street in Soho. The cost of making that icon will be met by money from my mother's estate and now, very sadly, from Carmel's as well. And Father Mark Elliot Smith, the parish priest of Warwick Street, has agreed to let us hold the memorial service for Carmel there. Also, and this really is exciting, the great composer Sir James Macmillan has agreed to write a piece of music in Carmel's memory, which will be, we hope, premiered at this service. In addition, Father Ben and I are planning to set up a Carmel Fund 
to raise money exclusively for nazarene.org. Please watch out for the details, which will be announced very soon. I know that Holy Smoke listeners offered Carmel and me such tremendous compassion and encouragement and offered so many prayers during her illness. I'm sure you agree that she deserves this lovely memorial service. And, by the way, you're all invited. <laughs>